Welcome and thanks for joining us. My name is Joe O'Mara. I am the Head of Aviation Finance with KPMG. And on behalf of KPMG and Airline Economics, I'm delighted to welcome you to the next in our series of Aviation Leaders podcast interviews. And we have joining with us today, Faroz Tarapur, who is the CEO of DAE. Uh, DAE will be known to a lot of our listeners, but Faroz, first off, thanks for joining us. And second, do you want to tell us very briefly a, a little bit about the company for the listeners who don't know? Great. Well, first of all, Joe, thanks for um, inviting us and, and taking the time to do this. So. Just very briefly, uh, DAE uh, owns, manages um, uh, approximately 400 aircraft, uh, which are worth approximately $15 billion. And we serve clients uh, in just over 56 countries today. Froze, we are nearly four months from when we've had a global pandemic declared. And obviously we had trouble coming from the east prior to that where do we broadly sit looking at the aviation sector now in your opinion you know so listen let, let's just do level set and this is kind of the obvious um observations that you know we have seen um a shock to the system the aviation system that is unlike <clears throat> uh, any other that we've seen um in recent times and uh, our friends at airbus uh, put together a little table that showed the impact uh, of this particular um, environment that we're in relative to the other known stress events that we've seen in the last few um, decades. And, you know, the characteristics here are that <clears throat> this was global, this was sudden, and it had implications on people's mobility, people's health. And, and th those those four or five things have never been kind of the, the red indicators in the past, uh, you know, one or more, but not all of them. Uh, and, and the good thing in this one that uh, we didn't have before is that the government response <clears throat> to the crisis that is going on has been extremely large, extremely quick. So I think that has been a great um, uh, kind of help uh, from that standpoint as well. I think if you look at kind of where we are and what is likely to happen, uh, the short answer is that we're going to see a lot of uneven um, kind of developments. Uh, and uh, because this is a health crisis at first, um, it is going to be driven by the solutions that we see around the globe um, uh, that solve the fundamental reason why people are not flying, which is um, health-related. Uh, there are certain countries and jurisdictions who, as you know, have a, a significant lead in terms of tracing, testing, uh, and have done a very good job of isolating the economic impact of spikes, and other jurisdictions haven't. Um, so I think that we will... Um, we remain vigilant in terms of what is likely to develop there. Uh, the other kind of obvious observation uh, from our standpoint is that, you know, if you have a homogenous uh, uh, regulatory environment, so in other words, a large domestic market where the rules from where you take off are exactly the same as the rules um, uh, where you land, 
you know, there is a there is an obvious advantage to uh, flying in that um, as opposed to <clears throat> destinations where there is great disparity and there is likelihood of uh, different medical um, facilities, different regulations in terms of mobility, uh, quarantine, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that as we look at the world uh, in, in these different regions, uh, recovery is going to be quite jagged, at least from our perspective, and driven by, you know, the obvious perception of safety. So for us, stepping back from the wider picture and looking at it across the various main markets being kind of Europe, the US and Asia, how do you see those markets being impacted differently? And how do you see the recovery differing across each market? So, you know, Joe, when we look at the world um, in in different regions, we kind of look at it in a bit more uh, macro uh, environment than that. And when we look at what is likely to happen, I think that we make the distinctions somewhat around geography, but more around uh, you know the readiness on healthcare front, etc., and, and also timing. So you know because this health crisis has moved sort of east to west. People who had to deal with it earlier have had uh, have found a way to um, come up with solutions earlier and are likely to lead that recovery. We're already seeing that in parts of Asia. Uh, and then uh, we hope to see that in different parts uh, of the world as well. I think the big question marks from our perspective are around um, the U.S., which is a large domestic market, as we all know but uh, has not been able to get its hands around the health issue. And therefore, there is a, a larger question mark around a recovery than it needs to be. Europe, on the other hand, um, we hope um, that the EU will consolidate their travel policies and it looks like they're heading uh, in that direction. And if that happens, we think that that is a good sign as well. But think around the world, recovery is going to be driven by how comfortable people feel um, on the health side versus whatever the leisure or business reason for which they were going to step on a plane in the first place. And do you see a strategic advantage for, say, lessors that, that have greater exposure in certain areas? Or, or is it too early to, to say there is a real advantage on, on how your, your lessee portfolio is made up? I think the advantage here will be to lessors who have displayed kind of good financial underwriting discipline as we got into this process, because it's too late, of course, to fix your portfolio now. But if you, when going in, uh, underwrote the asset that you wanted at the price that you wanted, selected the lessee and put the right lease in place, then I think your ability to navigate all that regardless of the headline event, is actually quite good. So it doesn't really matter if, or, or not not in its absolute terms, but it, it even if an airline gets into trouble, if you have the right structural protection around the asset and the exposure, I think financially those lessors will do fine. If, on the other hand, you had excessive concentrations or excessive credit um, uh, profiles, I think all of those uh, are going to end up uh, hurting um, those lessors kind of disproportionately. And on the on the airline side, where you know you spoke at the start of the unprecedented government 
response we've seen. So, you know, throwing huge quantities of, of cash uh, at the problems that are out there at a local level. What are your thoughts on the level of government support that has been put out for airlines so far? Yeah, so based on our tracker, you know, there is just over 100 billion, 110, I think, of support that has been announced. Uh, but it's a little bit skewed in that 80% of that, uh, I believe, is in the US uh, and Europe. Uh, and 60% um, is in the form of a loan, which means repayable. Uh, and, and some of that has come with quite a few conditions. I think whilst we are really encouraged by the quantum and the speed of governmental support for a critical industry in a lot of these jurisdictions, what we haven't seen and must see is governmental support in other parts of the world where airlines play, at least in our opinion, even a bigger role in national economic development. And I think those are the governments who need to step up sooner rather than later and uh, make sure that their national champions are indeed well supported in this period of uncertainty. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point and, and one that I don't feel is coming across as well as it could in various jurisdictions, as you say, the, the strategic importance of air travel and be that supporting you know, the local business economy or, or the tourism sector. Just, just can't be underplayed and the value of getting that back. From, from a DAE perspective, what has been your approach generally, and I know there'll be a case-by-case -case impact on this, of dealing with the airlines and, and the wave of deferrals that have come as they've attempted to manage their cash flow positions? Yeah, so from our perspective, um, we have, just as you've said it, we have approached it on a case-by-case -case basis because there really is no other way um, to approach it. And what the approach that we have taken is that if uh, our customer needs help, we are here to provide that help because um, we have entered this crisis in a relatively decent position from a liquidity perspective. But all of those discussions need to be had around the concept of partnership because um, it, it just cannot be that one person does well and the other one doesn't. And we say that in the context of what leasing means to our airlines. So if you think about it, you know, 35 or 40% of that fleet is currently funded by um, lessors. And that capital has allowed that airline industry to prosper in a way that it otherwise wouldn't have. And to ensure future prosperity, which is sure to come because the demographics that propelled aviation to where it is today are not going to go away. They might you know, be suppressed for a while as we deal, we the world deals with this health issue. But when they come back, the airline industry uh, will want the flexibility that the leasing capital provides to further accelerate its growth over the next decade and the decade after that. And I think our, our primary message is that we have enabled an industry um, by providing capital that allowed them to grow. It's a difficult period for everybody. We're here to help to the extent we can. But the solution always has to be where both people do okay, not just 
one side of the equation. And I think most clients have internalized this message and are looking to the future because ultimately um, it's not just today you need to survive. The reason you're surviving today is that you want to prosper tomorrow. Uh, and, and so far, um, that's the fundamental approach we've taken with our clients. And, and can I ask just, you know, we're, we're a number of months into this now. Are you more optimistic uh, on that medium term outlook than you were maybe a couple of months ago? Or, or how has your sentiment gone? I think we are um, quite data driven in that, um, uh, you know, I would say that a few weeks ago, uh, it looked really um uh, hopeful in terms of maintaining this sharp upward trajectory. The spikes that we have seen in the U.S. in the last few days um, are not helpful developments. And I think that if you try and um, discern some trends, you know, obviously when you open, there is a spike. But the question is, you know, what has that jurisdiction done to prepare itself for the spike so that there is no kind of U-turn, if you will, in economic um, uh, activity, and, and we're linked to that. Uh, and I think in the last few days, that hasn't really worked out that well. So we are hoping that um, this um, sort of a wake-up call in terms of what happens if you don't manage all the dimensions correctly encourages the rest of the jurisdictions around the world to be more thoughtful about it, thoughtful about it and in turn, that propels a much more predictable path to recovery. And, and in looking at the OEM side, so obviously you know, your challenges already coming in uh, for Boeing on Max and Airbus for having their own uh, production issues. This has been a seismic for, event for them as well. How, how have you viewed their behavior since the crisis hit? And I'm curious to get your thoughts over what this might mean for OEM behavior with lessors going forward. Um, I know we, we would have spoke for our leaders report uh, late last year. You, know, you gave some very interesting thoughts around the interaction with OEMs and the advantage DE potentially had by not being tied in to an order book. So very curious as to, to see how you think uh, the COVID crisis is going to impact on that relationship between OEMs and lessors? Well, firstly, let me just um, level set by saying that we do not have a speculative order with the OEMs. So our discussions with them are therefore um, not at the same velocity as uh, others who do have uh, orders and have a more pressing need to either defer or do other things to it as customer demand um, has stopped for the moment. Um, you know, having said that, um, the, the, the two things that we observe um, are that one, um, airlines are recognizing the benefit of having financially strong, experienced platform lessors as their counterparty because of various and sundry um, counterparties walking away in the last three months from transactions. Uh, and therefore, from an OEM perspective, what that means to having a good stable of financially strong experienced platform lessors going forward. 
So the situation that we had before, where lessors had some, uh, sorry, OEMs had somewhere between 15 and 20 lessors uh, each on their program, and just about anybody who walked in with a checkbook was given uh, a bit of that production line and kind of let's see what happens later. I, I think that if I was on the OEM side, I would want to take a very close look as to whether that model has helped them or indeed, as we would submit, hurt them, um, and that they might be better off uh, reintroducing discipline around how much um, content is placed in the lessor channel and which lessors uh, participate on what criteria, because ultimately, that is the support that the OEMs need to further accelerate the sales of their products to airlines who need capital to buy that stuff uh, from them. So I think that right now everybody is firefighting. And so therefore, we don't expect any OEM to look at it. But when um, they're able to come up for air, I would be surprised if they don't take a broader, more holistic perspective on what leasing really means to an OEM, particularly within the context of um, aircraft types that may be more than what the market needs in the near future. And on that firefighting piece, our theme, and we've talked a little bit about the challenges that the lessors have faced in assessing deferrals. What are the other key challenges that are out there, both, both for DAE and, and probably, you know, replicated wider across the leasing sector? Well, you know, when we look at that question, um, we put, uh, I think we can easily bucket uh, the issues that we're dealing with in uh, three uh, buckets. One is a set of practical challenges around, you know, how do you manage aircraft returns? How do you get your people uh, technical people around to do maintenance and acceptance of all kinds of stuff. And that's a challenge in itself. We're managing that as best as we can, but obviously this is not perfect. Now, as you know, we also own uh, an MRO and we're uh, adopting best practices that we see from airlines when they send in their own uh, aircraft and people to manage that. The second bucket I would say is... Um, accessing the markets. Now, all of us have a leverage model where people have somewhere between two and three parts of debt to every part of equity in there. And when that part doesn't work well, uh, the model kind of hiccups a little bit. I, you know, it's fair to say that in the beginning, that was stopped. Um, a couple of companies, uh, three companies in our industry have led the way to open the markets. We are uh, all of that is incredibly helpful to uh, everyone else in the market. And, and once the pricing is different, um, the, the liquidity seems to be normalizing at a, at a very, very nice rate. Um, and we're able to kind of not have to worry about that. And the last one, which I think is the, the more practical issue, <clears throat> biggest one we need to think about is whilst there is this gigantic disequilibrium between demand and supply at the moment, you know, how will that, um, how will that resolve itself? What path will it take? What time will it take? And how do we kind of uh, place our bets uh, relative to that expected line? And so I think when we think about the world, we think about kind of challenges in those three categories. 
And on that on that markets piece, um, interested to to see your thoughts because, as you say, obviously they're you know going in the last four weeks alone, you've had nearly three billion dollars in bonds being being issued, whether by by ALC and Air Cap, and you know at rates that to me, particularly the ALC side or maybe the second Air Cap side, were were very attractive. We have seen um, we've seen market confidence obviously massively increase in aviation finance. Do you think? That, that pricing is reflective of the fact that the market has an increased confidence and knowledge around the aviation finance product and, and a faith in, in its ability to better manage this crisis than you would on the airline side. Yeah, I mean, the fundamental difference between, uh, again, from a credit perspective, uh, between a lessor and an airline is that uh, a lessor's business model has substantial fundamental diversification built into it, whether it's from a geographical perspective or from a credit perspective or from an asset type perspective. And that diversification will will produce, and historically we can see that, uh, financial results that are very, very different. And therefore the credit market pricing for that different financial result should naturally be different uh, as well. And and we're seeing that. And I think this sector is a mature sector. This sector has fundamental kind of advantages uh, relative to underlying asset protection from a creditor perspective, even though we're selling unsecured debt. That is really quite distinguishing uh, and encourages people to invest in this sector. I think more important than the absolute pricing when we looked at the recent deals was the size of the books that had built behind what was ultimately priced. So significant levels of interest, which means good relative value. And then pricing, yes, it's higher than it used to be, but in my opinion, not higher than what is recoverable in the client market if you were to price new deals today. And looking at maybe maybe broadly across those challenges, you mentioned at the start, you, you have a very substantial loaned book. I think it's more than $11 billion of assets sit on DAE balance sheet, but you're also a very significant asset manager. Um, and you, know, you would have tapped the capital markets into ABS structures uh, in recent years and, and managed those assets and others. Do you see those challenges being different in any way in your capacity as an asset manager versus what you do as an asset owner? Uh, and then we might just pick up in your thoughts generally on, on the ABS market. Yeah, so in the fundamental, sorry, let me just level set by saying that our managed uh, aircraft offering, which is uh, called Aircraft Investor Services, AIS, um, it is is a lessor in its own right. So it's like we have a lessor within a lessor. AIS today manages 73 aircraft uh, on behalf uh, of its clients, and it's mandated to manage, contractually mandated to own and manage another 50. So it's it's a it's a just below a top 20 lessor in its own right. And because we run these two large platforms, owned and managed, our commitment to our managed uh, equity partners is that we don't distinguish uh, between how we manage in a broader sense an owned asset versus a managed asset. So for us, it's the same um, and and the same energy that goes into it. From a decision-making perspective, 
we are the servicer. We take our recommendations uh, on the managed side to the equity owners through a board structure, just like we take, um, for the lack of a better word, our recommendations on our own asset to our own internal governance structure, if you will. And then it kind of goes from there. But because our managed uh, equity partners are um, sometimes not as deeply into the aviation space as uh, as we are, we find that um, that that extra investment that we made early in establishing AIS is paying off very handsome dividends because from the very first day, we have had a, a very heavy customer touch in the touch points that we maintain with them and the governance structures and everything else that we do. And I believe um, that today those extra touch points are helping us because investors are relatively calm about making tough decisions, whether it relates to deferrals or taking aircraft back or um, selling something or even making equity commitments on the mandated aircraft that I talked about. So I think from a managed aircraft perspective, um, we we see very encouraging trends. Um, and we also think that that's a, a good reason for that is all the human investment that we've made into making sure that those touch points are appropriately connected to the financial risks that they have decided to take on. And on specifically the ABS side, which is a channel you've utilized um, a reasonable amount over the last few years, how do you see that market currently sitting? And it's obviously a market that will be closed for now. Do you have any expectation on when we might see an aircraft ABS again? Uh, that's a very good question, Joe, because uh, I, I don't think I have a, a decent answer to that simply because uh, it will it'll depend on how relative value emerges in different parts of the structured uh, credit market. So if you go back in time, uh, the reason aircraft ABS took off so dramatically is that it offered excellent relative value compared to other structured credit products that you might see. And I think as investors first seek to protect their principal and then B, to better understand the relative value that they're now seeing in different structured products, I, I think that that will take a little bit of time. You know, So for example, if you had an opportunity to buy a slice of a commercial real estate exposure, you know, how do you value that? Um, uh, or even a, a HELOC, how do you value that relative to our sector? I think we need to give investors some time, not only to see the data, but also to see how the structures are stacking up before they decide that this indeed is good relative value over the long term. And and more broadly then on the opportunities in aviation finance and probably book at these in two ways. Um, and the sale and leaseback market, and then we might talk about M and A and consolidation. On, on sale and leaseback, there's obviously a significant amount of tenders in the market. We've seen some people be very active, the likes of Boca over the last couple of months. What's your view on the current opportunities that are there, and and just how challenging is it for you at the moment to make an assessment on the economic proposition? So be that on the debt side or the airline credit side and, and the pricing side. Yeah, actually, it's not as difficult as you would think, because um, fundamentally, 
these are very sound franchises who are effectively dealing with uh, some pretty unique risks. Sometimes they are aided by governments who are their shareholders. Sometimes they are aided by private share, whatever. Uh, and so from a value perspective, a fundamental franchise value perspective, um, it's easy for us to overlay these things and, and come to a decision. I think that, you know, if you take a step back, Joe, and look at how kind of covenant protection works in the banking market, uh, the pendulum never, ever stays where it's supposed to be. And it always swings too far one way and then bad things happen and it always swings too far the other way. And if you look um, at that to try and draw a parallel in what happened to the leases in our industry just a year ago or a few, or uh, years leading up to just a, a year ago, you know, you saw that the balance of power uh, was significantly in favor of airlines in terms of weakening uh, credit protection in the leases. And because of this event, all of that has gone out the window. Uh, and so we see leases with the appropriate levels of protection that should have been there in the first place for utilization risk, for credit risk, and for all of the other uh, risks that we take. And so I think that is a very helpful tailwind from our perspective where we do the credit work um, and we are further enabled by uh, favorable developments on the structural protection side, and we're able to kind of execute against that. You know, as I say that, um, we don't think that everything goes back to where it needs to be or, or where it has to be within the next month, two months, three months, four months, five months from a SLB standpoint. And in that, uh, opportunities will continue to be here. They will continue to be here this year. They will continue to be here next year. And for us, the right thing to do is to pick the right set of opportunities that, that are right for us, as, as I'm sure everybody does as well. But from our standpoint, we don't see any particular need to rush into uh, doing something because we think that that window of, of new business opportunity is going to close uh, anytime soon. So th that has been sort of um, our approach. Now, uh, on the SLB side, on the MA um, side, you know, we have said, uh, as you know, we've been quite vocal on this, that, you know, a few years ago, even as late as last year, you know, if you were a 50 aircraft lessor looking to get to 100 aircraft, or if you were a 25 aircraft lessor getting to, looking to get to 50 or whatever your parameter was, uh, I mean, life got very difficult for you because um, capital was priced in a unique way, liquidity was priced in a unique way, and it was just difficult if you were a small lessor to be able to originate. Uh, I think that that situation now is further um, enhanced by the fact that on the M&A side, um, you know, if you were a small lessor looking to grow, um, there aren't that many opportunities now where you'll want to commit capital because um, if you don't have a massive buffer of liquidity lying around, you're not going to be able to um, help your clients in the way they need help because of rent relief, etc. cetera. Um, and so I think the opportunities to uh, buy assets is quite high. 
but I would say that because of the price adjustment that would be necessary given the the deferment of cash flow, et cetera, that probably the number of willing sellers is also not going to be um, super high at the moment. So I think we're not uh, holding out um, hope uh, at the moment of doing any um, kind of franchise type M&A transactions. And as it turns out, the kind of solutions that airlines are looking for is beginning to mimic kind of mini portfolio purchases anyway. So, you know, previously we would have bought, we meaning large participants in the industry may have bought 20 aircraft from other lessors. Well, today we can provide a 20 aircraft solution to a client and uh, are able to maybe uh, deal with that risk in a very different way as well. So uh, I think there is significant uncertainty on the M&A side. And on the SLB side, I would say that um, things are lining up really well. Yeah, I think that's interesting because when we look at the, the previous downturns, there was a time lag on M&A. Um, and as you know, people generally don't like selling leasing companies that they're profitable, that throw off a lot of cash and you need a distressed seller. And, and I do wonder given the level of distress here, whether you will have accelerants to that. Um, can I ask you just your general thoughts? And if you looked at, um, is your expectation, given that the, the quantum of debt that has been taken on on the airline side, um, that we will actually see that percentage of leased aircraft tick upwards from where it currently sits, say if it's somewhere in around the high 40% at the moment? Yeah, I think it's too early to draw any meaningful trend comparisons between the two things that you've just described. I think that uh, leasing offers an incredible benefit to airline clients, and they will continue to assess it in that way uh, going forward. Um, I think that airline clients need certainty um, in a way that they've never needed before. And if that certainty can be provided by using somebody else's capital um, to either grow or to exit asset types that are no longer relevant to their uh, fleet strategy or route strategy, then I think leasing will take on uh, a more significant role. Uh, but but I, I think it's too early to tell. Yeah, and, and on the... I know we're saying consolidation in M&A might be a while away. We, we've obviously seen the number of leasing companies and the purport, like if we look 10 years ago, I think the top three players had about 70% of the leasing market and now the top three players have, have less than a quarter. Do you, do you think the likelihood is, as we see a movement back towards, you know, a smaller number of lessors having a higher concentration of aircraft? Uh, well, I don't know about that for the following reason. Um, I, I think that as we sift through um, what the bankruptcies, uh, airline bankruptcies are going to do to each lessor, um, it'll be interesting to see what conclusions we should legitimately draw from that about the right scale in this particular business. I, I would say that as a going in hypothesis, that the, the scale that we look at today um, at the high end of the industry range 
maybe a scale that those people themselves will begin to question given some of the the concentration exposure that has kind of um, uh, been highlighted in these bankruptcies. And I wonder um, um, whether that in aggregate would force the redefinition of scale to be a somewhat lower number. I, I think it's too early to tell. Uh, but what I do know is that what will matter more is quality of lessors, not quantity of lessors. So I think that, um, as I said before, uh, what is becoming increasingly important to airlines, because this is a multi-year commitment business, is to have a counterparty who is going to be there uh, when things are great and when things are not so great. And, and so I think we will see a reinforcement of that trend as more um, um, financially savvy airlines uh, gravitate to more financially um, strong lessors. And for us, just in closing then, um, as I mentioned, we're, we're now several months into this crisis and to answer your weeks feel like months and months feel like years. So looking out over the rest of 2020, can I ask you if we were to sit here in December time, what would you hope our conversation would be like and what would be your expectation uh, of what it'll be like for the aviation sector? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question. You know, look, Joe, our um, expectation is that uh, people are going to start feeling comfortable with flying when they know that they're not putting their lives in jeopardy. And for that, uh, there is a whole series of un-industry related things that need to happen, such as developments on the medical front and then governmental uh, rules around precaution and um, safe measures and so on and so forth. And so it is our hope that a, there is a higher recognition of that, and there is a, a, a good degree of uniformity in how different uh, jurisdictions around the world approach that so that um, people feel more comfortable that when they travel, because uh, at, its, at its basic level, we all want to um, experience uh, a travel uh, for different reasons. But when we do that, we want to feel safe. We want to feel secure that even if something goes wrong in our calculations, that um, that there is a solution available, whether that's um, treatment, precaution, um, vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. We have yet to, to see, but we hope that the, the trajectory of that is the sharpest that it can be which then in turn will support a very decent trajectory in the recovery of our industry. I think, I think we'd all echo that sentiment and hope that we're there. For us, I'd like to, on behalf of KPMG and Airline Economics, thank you very much for your time today and what are, as usual, very, very interesting insights and, and just wish you and, and DAE all the best over the coming months. Joe, thank you for doing this and um, we wish you the same. Thank you.